I've seen for days that you've got some ways that must be checked In you I never can detect the slightest sign of intellect Hello everybody, welcome to a very exciting episode of the B-Side for the film stage. We, Connor and I, were lucky enough to talk with a movie star about his own B-Sides. As you know, if you listen to this podcast, here at the B-Side we talk about movie stars, not the movies that made them famous or kept them famous, but the ones that they made in between. And you are going to hear uh, a lovely interview we did with the one and only Alessandro Novola. And we spoke about his whole career, but primarily three B-sides that we kind of, betwixt the three of us, decided were good to talk about. They are Love's Labor's Lost from the year 2000. And then we talked about Ginger and Rosa from the year 2012 came out in 2013 i think in a lot of places and finally disobedience from just a couple of years ago um which is a really interesting movie uh starring also starring rachel vice and rachel mcadams and as always when i talk about the two of us i talk about connor o'donnell connor was this was had to be the I mean, one of the more exciting ones we've done, right? We did Koppelman earlier this year. Yeah, and I think similar similar to Koppelman, you know, and we will get into it with our conversation with Alessandro, but similar to Koppelman, it was sort of just, uh, you know, uh, things aligning in the right way, um, right? You know, in terms of availabilities and interests and and that kind of thing. And um, but yeah, definitely a super interesting one because I think. Not only are the kinds of movies that we're going to talk about the kinds of movies that we love talking about on this show, but he is also the kind of talent that I think we love talking about. Just oh, yeah. sort of kind of an, an undersung thread through a lot of movies sometimes that that you know maybe doesn't always get mentioned. Um, but uh, but a truly truly like a great talent and a and a you know at least obviously in our experience a an even nicer guy. And so um, definitely you know. He was he was super generous with his time and his insight. Um, so I think yeah, I'm excited for you to listen to this one, listener. Uh, this was a fun one to do. Yeah. And so you're listening. This is going to post. Um, you might be getting this from the main film sto- film stage show feed as well, because, you know, when we have these high profile guests, we want as many people as possible to listen to it. So you might be listening on the on the film stage show uh, 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 page. So we encourage you. To give us a follow over at the B side, um, which is you know, a part of the Film Stage family, and you'll get more kind of episodes like this. Um, if you want to know if we talk about Jurassic Park three, <laughs> you'll have to listen to find out. Um, <laughs> spoiler alert: we do um, briefly, but um, yeah, I mean, I think one important thing to mention is we do talk about the many saints of Newark in which he is a a lead, right? And yes, and he, yeah. He's very excited about it. We're very excited about it. Um, it's a little. There's a, a little bit of a bittersweet sweetness to the way we talk about the the movie. We literally recorded this interview hours before HBO Max and Warner Brothers decided. Well, I'm sure they decided before this, but announced that they were going to put out all of their movies from 2021 concurrently on HBO Max when as well as theatrical right so we we speak a little bit with alessandro about how david chase wants that movie to you know there's a 
they're postponing the release as much as they can because he feels like it should be seen on the big screen, which, of course, we agree with, you know, because, of course, we want to see it on the big screen. And also, of course, this HBO Max strategy will most likely limit the amount of eyes that see it on the big screen, unfortunately. But I think, obviously, the silver lining to that is you would hope many people watch it, right? Like, I think that's the thing. It's going to get coverage. It's the prequel to The Sopranos. He's playing Christopher's father, right? Like, yeah. None and, of this is, and it, you know, and it this seems it awesome. seems like the kind of opportunity he's been waiting for, um, and and the type of thing that you know. Yeah. To to your point, you, you'd want eyes on it just because he, sort of per the point of this specific episode, is just also somebody who deserves to be seen. Um, like like I said, he's a great talent, and the the three that we talk about are kind of are indicative of that and indicative of how sort of multifaceted he can be as an actor as well. So, um, yeah. So I guess unless there's anything else we need to tee up without further ado, just, uh, get ready for your best talking Raptor impersonations. And, and, uh, this is our conversation with Alessandro Nivola. Okay. So, Alessandro, thank you for being with us on the B side. It's good to see you. It's good to so just for context for people listening, um, you followed us, and I was like, "What's up? We gotta, I gotta just be like Alessandro. Let's talk about some B sides." And you were, you were the best, and you were like, you "Posted something and uh, that must have caught my attention, but I can't remember what it was." So. So this is the theory, and you can te- you can confirm this. So our good friend Corey Everett, who's a listener and a, and a good friend, he created a film game, a card game called Cinephile, and it's like a, kind of a cool game for you know movie fans. And and um and I think he'll post on his Twitter like connect this person to that person, right? Because like part of the card game is like the six degrees game where it's like. Alessandro Navola was in Jurassic Park 3 with William H. Macy, who was in blah, 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 right? Whatever. And I think you were in one of those. And he, like, maybe tagged somebody and we were involved in that. So Cor- our friend Corey's convinced that's how you yeah, saw us. Yeah, because he was, like, I think when somebody followed up with you as part of the answer or something, Corey was kind enough to, because we had done. Um, I feel sure it was more interesting than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had done an episode, uh, t- two episodes ago, we covered Kate Beckinsale. Uh, right, and right, so right. We, and we, so we talked Laurel Canyon. Oh, maybe there was something about Laurel Canyon. That sounds familiar. Yeah, so that was, <laughs> we were talking, so, so and, we're, and this is actually a good inroad. We were, I think in the Kate Beckinsale ep- episode, we were joking about how, and Connor, you can correct me, I think for both of us, and I know we, I I was reading interviews you've done, you did that interview with Ethan Hawke, and he mentioned this in that interview, um, I think for Wizard of Lies, he, uh, I think for a lot of people, you were British, like to a lot of people, right? Like the (laughs) fact that you're from Boston, like is something where it's like, oh, wow, okay, like because of your name, because of so many of the British movies you did early on, and then even in Laurel Canyon, right, you're, you're kind of doing an English performer. And so, but that must've been how you saw it. Cause we talked about, we talked about Laurel Canyon on, uh, on the Kate Beckinsale B side, but so, yeah. So, okay. So you're, this is what is amazing about your career, right? When we talk about like, so with the B side, uh, B sides, obviously we talk about 
movie stars, not the ones that kept them famous or made them famous, but the ones they made in between. And you are, you have so many interesting movies, like, like in every just different genre. Say, you have so many in between. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> But but it's what's rewatching and and like and first watching a few of them kind of uh, before you came on like it's unbelievable like it, it's so it's so amazing how many like places you've been able to go in the last you know twenty five years and so anyway me and Connor were talking before we started recording for me it's crazy ninety seven you're you you have a bit part in inventing the Abbots and you have a a big part in face off of course is Pollock's Troy and those two movies were like so like special to me as a younger person obviously in totally different ways and so rewatching them I was just floored that that was the same person I mean what was that experience like we were we tweeted about you were in this great Vanity Fair uh cover piece like two years before that called the boys of Broadway where it's like you and like Rufus Sewell and Damien Lewis and all these people like walking across the bridge. And it's this beautiful, you all had Broadway shows at the time. And then like two years later, you're like ha having to contend with, you know, John Travolta and Nicolas Cage at like a thousand percent. What was, what was that as like a young actor? What was that like? Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, I hadn't really had my heart set on a movie career when I was starting out. I, um, I had a really old fashioned start to my career and I had grown up kind of like fantasizing about being in the theater. And I had a cousin who had, you know, been an actor for a while and I'd seen him in like a college production of some, uh, of, of no exit. I think it was John Paul Sartre's no exit at, uh, he was going to Williams. And I remember as like a kid going to the sea, him in this play and this like little black box theater there. And it was just him and the three other people. There was like no sets, just like it was very pared down thing. And for some reason that really turned me on. <laughs> like uh, it was like the most unglamorous, um, uh, you know, first exposure to seeing an actor, um, uh, you know, do his thing. And that was kind of what I wanted to do. And so everything that at the beginning was uh, about kind of that. And I was going to like drama schools over the summers and interning at theaters and all that kind of thing. So by the time when I got to New York, you know, I was like one, that was the, my first year I'd been an undergrad at Yale and I came out and that was my first, my first play in uh, New York at all was uh, starring on Broadway with Helen Mirren. So it was like, and I'd been like doing, uh, you know, regional theater things while I was in college, but it was still like a huge step up for me. I couldn't believe it. And, and then there were all these other guys there, all those guys in that picture, it was Jude Law, Billy Crudup, Rufus Sewell, Damian Lewis, Malcolm Getz, and John Benjamin Hickey, those were the, the all of them. And we were, um, uh, you know, we were all doing these plays at the same time and getting together at night and um, just like destroying ourselves until the sun came up and then <laughs> doing the plays again. And it was like that, you know, I was 22 or 23 and I was kind of like, I, it, this is it. Like, I, 
I've done it now. Like, I don't really, I don't have any more ambitions. And um, one by one, all those other guys started going off to do movies. And um, I, I suddenly just, I, I like that was like this huge eye opener for me that, oh, I guess that's like the next step. You know, that's what I'm supposed to do. Like, I, I didn't really um you know up until that point i hadn't kind of like grown i mean i look i i loved robert de niro and things when i was a kid but like i wasn't sort of i didn't have those kinds of dreams until i started making movies myself so the whole like face off thing and then invented the abbots like they that came out of the play i people had seen me in the play and so casting directors started like you know, asking me to audition for movies and, um, and I did. And, and the inventing the Abbots thing was like, just, I think two days work or something. And it was a tiny little thing, but the face-off role was obviously just like a huge deal. And it was a really coveted part. And that was, not only was it like my sort of, you know, real break into movies, but it was also the role that made me realize that I could have quite a lot of freedom to shape a, a performance in a movie um, that uh, went beyond just what was written on the page. And um, in that case, the, the character had been written really as like a younger version of Nick. It was like described in the same kind of you know, wearing like the same kind of clothes. And he was like a kind of mini me sort of character. And right. uh, I guess like my feeling was, and when I met John Woo, like that's sort of how we talked about it. And I think I even went to the, uh, to the meeting with him, the audition or whatever, wearing leather pants. And, <laughs> and, uh, and um, then once he cast me and I really started thinking about how I was going to go about doing it. Like Nicholas Cage is such an outsized personality himself as an actor and as a performer. And, and so the idea of trying to kind of, I don't know, like, not that it was a competition, but that, you know, to try and do him as well or better than he does him uh, definitely seemed like uh, a losing battle. And so I, I started thinking of ways that I could reconceive of the character in opposition to him. And that was when I kind of fixated on this documentary that Terry Zweigoff directed called Crumb. Oh, right. Okay. And uh, there was, uh, you know, I was trying to think of an example of um, not just one kind of loony character, but like a family of people who all were very eccentric and, you know, verging on some kind of psychopathology and, Crumb, Crumb, you know, is about this psychedelic cartoon artist uh, called Robert Crumb, who's still, uh, you know, prolific and alive. But he had two brothers, both of whom, you know, one of whom, this guy Charles, who I based my character on, what, you know, really kind of drove himself insane. And he used to write these journals that where the script got smaller and smaller and smaller until you couldn't decipher it anymore. And like, I think that's like a telltale sign of some <laughs> problem. Um, but sadly he committed suicide. Anyway, I, 
that became my model for the role. And I got them, the costumers to change everything and get rid throughout all the stuff that they had for me. And they got me like wide. I told them I wanted to look like Woody Allen and then they got me like wide corduroys and sweater vests and that kind of thing. Um, so anyway, it was like, and then Nick was just so encouraging about it and he loved what I was doing. And I got so much affirmation from him that it really like just gave me huge amounts of confidence in this like uh, arena where I was working with, uh, you know, famous people and, you know, people who were, uh, you know, big players and, in the in Hollywood and and I felt like kind of protected by Nick and that I could just do anything and that uh you know uh it would be all right because he was there like kind of cheering me on that's awesome yeah I mean that's that's right in the pocket of Nicolas Cage Great American Action Trilogy that's Con Air um what's the one I'm forgetting The Rock Rock. The Rock and uh and Face Off I mean that's he's, he's got all the power in the world no it's and it's i don't know it's it's an impressive gamble to take as a young actor because you know you look back at that movie and you're and you're sort of right up against two actors who in the best way possible are just eating the scenery right are like giving these fun scenery chewing performances and you know the the decision to do that i think paid off in spades because it's a super memorable part of the movie um, which I think in the context of those two performances is not necessarily an easy thing to do. You know, it also um, opened up like the possibility for people to see me. Like once once people saw me in that role and they knew that it, like I didn't look like that and it was such a kind of, you know, the behavior of it was so particular and different than me. Uh, it really, I think, made people think, oh, well, anything's kind of, possible you know uh, as far as the way they thought of me as an actor like there weren't you know it definitely opened up like a whole range of of roles that I might not have ever been given a crack at if it hadn't been for that just because of having you know played you know chosen to play it in this kind of way that was very different from myself well and to that to that point the next couple years exemplify that uh, basically where it's you have uh, reached the rock in 1998, which I watched and it's John Hughes wrote it. And it's almost like a darker version of a Hughes movie to a degree where it's, it's you and William Sadler kind of, uh, versus each other in the small town, uh, interesting movie. Um, and then, but like totally different role, right. You're kind of, it's like young rebel, you know, type of a thing, best laid plans, totally different role. You're going up against, young you know josh brolin and um young reese witherspoon that movie's crazy if you haven't seen that uh people who are listening that's a wild like 90s uh twisty movie and then like mansfield park is that same year which is like got to be the one of the best and most underrated of the jane austen adaptations where you're playing henry crawford right and like just totally different characters so that must have just been I guess nice, right? I mean, you were kind of able to play all these different types within kind of the Hollywood system, which is pretty rare. Really what happened was that after Face Off, um, I had met Michael Winterbottom, who, uh, you know, um, was going to direct that movie, The Cider House Rules, um, that Tobey Maguire was in. Um, And 
um, I had a meeting with him right as I was, as I had finished face off and, um, he, uh, we just got along great. And I was told I was going to be in that movie with him directing. And, um, and then he got in some argument with Harvey Weinstein, who was producing it at the time. And, uh, he like got fed up. He's a very like interesting guy and he beats to the sound of his own drum, Michael. And he, he definitely doesn't like to kind of be, you know, pushed around by anybody. Um, and I think he, he smelled a rat with Harvey and decided like that this isn't a road he wanted to go down. And so he pulled out of the movie and I was really disappointed because I'd seen Jude, I think, uh, he had directed, um, and a movie called Butterfly Kiss. And I was really, I thought he was really, really cool director. And I was dying to work with him. And he suddenly the whole thing was like, all bets were off and the movie didn't seem to be happening. And so I forgot about it. And then, and then this script arrived just out of nowhere to my apartment where I was living at that time in West of Hollywood. And it was just like this little brown envelope. And it was sent from him directly to me. And it was some script that he had like had kicking around from years before. And he was like, I'm going to direct this instead. Do you want to be in this one instead? And it was to play a fisherman from this small town on the South coast of England called Hastings. And, uh, you know, I'd been to England once before that. And it was just the weirdest casting choice. I don't know why it was like an ex-con fisherman from Hastings. And I was like, you know, why me? You know, I don't know. But I was like, of course, I was up for anything. Uh, it seemed like an adventure. And the next thing I knew, I was living in Hastings and um, doing this weird little movie that he directed. Um, it was very specifically set in a particular class and and you know part of england that not even a lot of people in england are that familiar with and right and uh and it was with rachel vice starring opposite me and um and and then you know i ended up shacking up with her for a year uh over there after we finished the movie and that was really why i ended up doing all these english movies um was because of that movie and meeting her and so then um, as a result of like, I started living over there for a while. And uh, even after she and I kind of went our separate ways, I, I, I kept like, I did like three or four back-to-back -back movies there. And um, Mansfield Park was one of them. And it, it sort of culminated in, in Love's Labor's Lost. That was like the, the sort of third or fourth movie in a row that I'd done in England. Um, and it was really just by chance. Like I, I didn't plan on playing all these English characters. I didn't plan on having this kind of half my career being based in England. And then it just happened. And then, and then I met my wife on Love's Labor's Lost. And so I, ever since then, like my life has been kind of bifurcated, both my life and my career have been bifurcated between the UK and, and America, even though we live here in Brooklyn. Yeah, and, and and so Love's Liver's Lost is kind of one of the three movies we wanted to focus on, which um, you know, directed by Kenneth Branagh. It's uh, obviously adapted from the Shakespeare play, which is one of his earlier plays and one of his, I guess, regarded as like his lesser, like not 
you don't hear it with Hamlet and everything like that. But watching it for this podcast, I was I really enjoyed this movie, and I know yeah, at the agreed. time, agreed. And and I know at the time, you know, reading about it, it really did get kind of just you know buried and the reviews weren't great and i do think it part of it had to have been it's almost like the end in a degree of the uh, uh, kind of brana doing his shakespeare thing he does as you like it a few years later for hbo but it's only you know he had done hamlet four years before right and it's it almost feels like people are just like all right kenneth all right. But but what's a shame about that watching it now is it's very inventive, right? It's so it's for those who don't know what the play is about, very bare bones, right? It's essentially it's a comedy even though the ending is is surprisingly um kind of breaks from tradition of his of Shakespeare's other comedies, but but it's essentially um these four men are they and and you play the king in this in this film. Uh, they they swear off women for three years so they can focus on their studies essentially. And then, but of course, that becomes harder than you know they intended to be because there are these four ladies who come into their purview, and it becomes this like hemming hemming and hawing and you know back channel flirtations, you know, and all this you know the the usual the usual stuff you'd expect in a Shakespeare play, but. The way that Brana does it, right? It's like almost uh, the shadow of wars is is over it, and and all of these kind of early nineteen hundreds uh, songs are throughout, right? Like Cole Porter, Cole Porter tunes and whatnot. And it's, I don't know, it's a very fresh adaptation. I mean, what, what was your, I mean, Alessandro, what was that experience like? I guess, I mean, that was it. Couldn't have been like anything else you had done up to that point. Yeah. Um, well. So, I, I mean, the way I see that movie, uh, I mean, you've described it well. It, it's kind of like um, a flaw, like a kind of beautiful failure in a way. Like, I, sure. uh, on the page, first of all, it was absolutely brilliant. Like, one of the best scripts I've read. And what was great about it was that Branna had in a really inspired way chosen these like classic jazz standards by Gershwin, Irving Berlin and Cole Porter and found these class, you know, these are like the most famous like jazz standards of all time, you know, like um, uh, even, you know, everything from there's no business like show business to um Oh God, you know, I won't dance. I mean, like all the sort of classics. And he chose each song to, you know, where so that the lyrics of the song happened to feel like an extension of what was going on in the climactic moments of each given scene. And so the scene would kind of be reaching its its climax with all of Shakespeare's original language and then just kind of almost seamlessly uh, explode into one of these songs that felt like they'd been written with the play in mind or with that moment of the story in mind. And uh, it just totally, totally worked. Um, once we got in there, I think like his his vision for the the world of the 
play and when to set it because Shakespeare's plays, you can often, you know, a, a play like that isn't really rooted to one place in time. You can set it anytime. And, and people do that a lot with different Shakespeare productions on stage. Um, and he set them, he set it uh, in the, I think it was in the interwar period, um, you know, sort of, or, or was it, just before the First World War, maybe. Um, which I was think like it's a this, transitional, uh, I think it's because it, it's the it, 30s. It, it was like yeah. an innocent time yeah. just before, I think it was just before the First World War, just yeah. before, you know, this moment, just before like, um, you know, people's people of the age of our characters would lose their innocence. And the First World War generally is considered the, the, the moment in history where that happened. And, um, and uh or maybe it was the 30s you know just before the second world war or whatever but it was this period where of, of of relative like peace and 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 happiness where you could kind of like bury yourself in in books or you know whatever kind of frivolity and and like the the real world didn't really matter and then at you know it it, it worked because at the end of the play like you know, adulthood and the real world just comes kind of crashing down on them in a in a sort of a tragic way. And so all of that was just great. And it it really had auspicious beginnings. Um he cast it in a, a really weird way. You know, I even though the idea of it and the style of it was meant to be kind of rough around the edges and that the the singing and dancing was supposed to be like a little silly it never really committed one way or another as to whether it was going to be like really a, a musical where the numbers like were just like what going to blow your your hair off or if it was going to be like a bunch of sort of people like tripping over their own shoelaces and that that was going to be kind of charming and it was sort of in between those two uh extremes and I think that hurt it a little bit. Like some of the people he cast were like amazing singers and dancers. Some of the people he cast couldn't sing or dance at all. And some right. of them kind of could. And um, so it, it sort of became confusing, I think, for all of us. Like, well, are we supposed to be doing this like a Broadway musical where like we're really nailing these numbers or are we supposed to sort of is the audience supposed to find it kind of funny that we can't quite do it as well as we should? Right, right. But on the other hand, like the people that they had choreographing it and the people they had doing the music and everything were like top people. So the way that the numbers were set up and the way it was all looking and the, you know, the was really kind of professional and expert. And it was just this slight mismatch with, you know, the kind of general standard of, uh, you know, the, the singing and dancing. So that was a tricky thing. And then meanwhile, like Moulin Rouge had either just come out or came out just before it or something. And that was just so like, <laughs> like huge in terms of its production value. And this was like a much more kind of contained type of feeling to it. And it just, I think felt like really, it just got like tsunamied by Moulin Rouge and that kind of like, a huge operatic loudness of that movie. Um, you know, and that kind of yeah. charm of ours was was lost on some people. 
Well, it kind of reminded me watching it of, and this is not a perfect, you know, A to B, but it kind of reminded me of New York, New York, the Scorsese movie, which I love. I love that movie. But at the time, you know, people were kind of like, what? Come on. Like, Liza and Robert De Niro, this is, it's a half a musical. And, but then when you watch it now, it's charming. And you're like, there's nothing like this. Scorsese's putting it all out there. And then, uh, you know, anyway, I, I think it's certainly worth seeking out as, 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 as a piece from, from that time. No, it's really like, it's got a, it's got a vibe and it's like, there's, and there's something about, there's something about it where it's like, it's heart is on his sleeve. Yeah. And that's what's so wonderful about Branna in general is that he really loves those plays and he really wants to, the, the plays to be accessible to everyone, like in a way that isn't sort of annoying and highbrow or pretentious, like He's a very unpretentious guy mm -hmm. and he really understands what's at the heart of the plays and like, you know, how, how those plays translate into the modern moment and, um, and how to tell the stories in a way that is really understandable and accessible and where you feel the kind of emotional backbone of, of, you know, the, the story. And, um, and so that really comes across. And in all of his Shakespeare movies, I think that's true. Like he really like, he just loves the plays and he just like is kind of excited about wanting to to do them in a, in a way that is going to be, you know, uh, understandable to a modern audience. And that, that does really come across. And I'm, you know, I met my wife in this. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's like, I mean, I, there's, you know, there's a funny story behind that where I had been, I was living in LA at that time. And my next door neighbor was Leonard Cohen's son, Adam Cohen, who's a great musician in his own right. And he and I had j both just, uh, landed in LA, uh, um, from New York and we were living right next door and, and kind of palling around. And he had just come back from England where he'd done it, been touring with his band and he, he played some shows in London. And when I told him I was going to go film this movie, he like told me I had to come over to his apartment. And he had something for me and he went digging in his drawers and there was all this like lint and paper clips and shit. And there was like some little rolled up piece of paper and he put it in my hand and he said, this is the hand, this is the, the number of like the, the hottest girl in London and you have to call her. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm going to like call up this girl and say, my friend, Adam Cohen somehow got your number. <laughs> You're really hot and I should call you up. And, uh, you know, apparently he'd been at something, he'd been at an audition for Moulin Rouge. In fact, there you go. Bringing in, uh, uh musicians. To play, um, you know, they were bringing in singers to play um, um, Ewan McGregor's part before they had decided to cast Ewan. And he had been in the waiting room to go into that audition. And this other actress had been in there and he was like, got talking to her and he was like, yeah, I'm doing this show. Will you come? And she gave him her number. So I like put it in my pocket and I was like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I'll see you later. <laughs> you know, I flew over and I arrived in my hotel and I emptied my pockets and there was like a packet of information about who was in the movie and everything. And I was reading down it while I was like brushing my teeth and I came to this name in the cast that looked familiar. And I went and I got a little piece of paper and I unrolled it and it was, <laughs> you know, Emily Mortimer 
and she was in this movie and I had her number and she was in my movie. And so the first day of rehearsal, I went up to her and I said, uh, you know, hey, I have your telephone. Yes. And, uh, and she was like, what are you talking about? And I explained that this guy, my friend, Adam Cohen, that had gotten her number and she never called him back. But uh, and uh, that was the sort of conversation starter that ended up leading to us um, getting together. In that That's amazing. That is a great story. That's amazing. Uh, one thing you mentioned actually about the way kind of Bronick keyed into the melding of the songs with Shakespeare. One of the things I really enjoyed watching the movie, I had never seen it uh, until watching it for this, but one of the things I really enjoyed about it is how it highlights sort of the roots of screwball in Shakespeare and the sort of Shakespearean nature of screwball musicals from the thirties. Cause it all translates so well. And even if it's sort of, it, well, I can understand what you're talking about with that sort of middle ground gray area of not necessarily c committing to something big and bombastic. Um, but I don't know. I think, I think the movie overall succeeds on a level of, if you are willing to be charmed by it, um, it, it certainly kind of excels at that, even on, even if it's on a, uh, a superficial level, um, and I have to ask, so did you, did you do your own singing? Yeah. Yeah. Was that something that was new to you at the time or was that something you had already kind of, done uh, no, I, no, I've done a lot of singing. I'd been in rock bands all through high school and college and I play a lot of instruments and, uh, I had I think, had I even done Laurel Canyon, no, Laurel Canyon was after, um, I had, uh, done some musicals in college. Um, I had like some professional singing training in like drama schools and things like that. So no, I had, I had done a lot of singing, um, but maybe not exactly that kind of thing. It was very like particular style, mm -hmm. sort of the way that Fred Astaire sings. I don't know if you've ever yeah. heard. Yeah. Yeah. But, sure. Got this parent kind of lie, you know, <laughs> lie boy, you know, like it's all that kind of shit. And um uh no, that was really fun. I mean, we had like two or three weeks of rehearsal with Ken um in London at Sheraton Studios, where it was like sort of scenes out of like fame or something, where we were going from room to room with our backpacks on and our like dancing shoes, and like we go to singing practice and then we go to you know, our choreography practice or whatever. And uh, it was really kind of, it was really enjoyable, that whole process. And we all got, you know, we were all sort of struggling along with it. But um, uh, no, I think when you really put your finger on it with the screwball thing, I mean, that's really why uh, that play was so well married to the, to that, uh, um, to that era of songs and, and filmmaking style that he was kind of imitating. So Love's Labor's Lost, that was that was 2000, right? Um, that same year, you pop up in a little movie called Time Code. Which, I mean, Connor, we, me and Connor went to film school together. Like, that's like a, that's like a classic. Yeah, it's like, like, if you're like a burgeoning film student, you definitely like watch them. Mike like, this, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Well, because it is. Yeah. I mean, look, it, it, totally different from Love's Labor's. It's like another one. It's another movie where it's like, there's not another movie like this, right? You're like, yeah. you know, it's insane to watch. Yeah. And then, I have a funny story about time code. Oh, go ahead. Good. Go for it. I um, So we were, you know, Mike Figgis directed it. It's on four. The, the screen is split up into four quadrants, into quadrants, four little screens. 
And uh, the way he shot it was each uh, each of our storylines that was running, there were four stories kind of running through it simultaneously that eventually started to intersect. And he, uh, each, there was, there were four cameras and each camera would just run for an hour and a half and there were no cuts. Um, and eventually the, you know, two cameras would end up in the same room as the story started to converge. Um, and it was a kind of inspired idea and experiment and everything. Um, but as we got into the filming of it, we would do the whole movie every day and then sit and watch back the yesterday's take and then kind of talk. The idea was we were supposed to sort of talk about how it was going to, how we were going to improve it and everything. But like, as we started going along, it just didn't feel like, I don't know, that Figgis had, was, was kind of guiding this in any way that he had this kind of good idea about how to do it. And then it was just sort of like, well, just see what happens and, and I'll just pick one of the takes. And I was um, a young actor at that time and like, just, uh, you know, not a very, uh, at that moment, just um, not very sort of didn't understand how to be political. And I started getting really like annoyed that we weren't kind of making this thing better each day. And I started having this really bad attitude and I was like, you know, sort of increasingly kind of sulking through these screenings that they were doing of the thing and just becoming like more and more of a bad seed. And eventually Figgis had just like got fed up with me and just was really annoyed at my attitude. And like, he was like, we need to talk. And we like went off and had this like screaming argument oh, on the corner man. of the set with everybody kind of watching. And, and we were all mic'd up and the sound guys were like, <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, it, it culminated in him saying, fuck off out of my film. And uh, so I then was like, yeah, fine, I quit. And so like I left. And then like an hour later, it became clear that there was no way that they could actually shoot the movie without me. Right. <laughs> so, like, you know, wound together. And so I got this call from the producer saying, you know, Mike really wants you to come back and everything. And I was like, oh God. All right. So I came back and he and I like hugged and said we were sorry. And we did the movie, you know, we finished the last few days of it or whatever. And then, um, uh, a, a few months later, I, I got a call from Mike saying, hey, listen, you know, we're getting the old gang back together and everything. And, uh, you know, we're going to do another one. And it's going to be in this Venice hotel and it's going to be called Hotel. And, uh, you know, do you want to be in this? And I was like, I cannot believe like he's actually asking me to do another <laughs> one. And I was like, yeah, I'm in, you know. And um, so then I waited and I never really heard anything about it and I forgot about it. And then I ran into Julian Sands like nine months later and I was like, how you doing, man? You know, and he was like, oh, I'm great. I just got back from Venice uh, where, you know, we shot another one of them. You know, we got the old gang back together. Oh my God. Oh, you weren't there, you know. And I was like, what the fuck? You know, like he actually did it. He never called me. I, I, ne I never figured out if that was just like his like, final way like you know final you, fuck you yeah, yeah fair enough but but so apparently the guy who replaced me because everybody else from the original movie was in that movie but the guy who replaced me in the cast was burt reynolds and um so burt reynolds shows up at this thing and they were shooting it the same way and if i was the bad seed of the first film 
Burt Reynolds turned out to be the oh, sure. of the second film. And he started sitting there, you know, at these screenings, just the same way that I'd been. Oh like, my God. Cow on his face, just looking totally pissed off and skeptical about the whole thing. And one day they're filming and the cameras just have to follow you and do whatever you do. They just have to keep following. And they were following him and he, it was all set in this hotel and he, they were following him down this hallway and he keyed into a bedroom and they went in with him and he like took out the suitcase and opened it up and then like started throwing all these clothes in it. And they were following him and like artfully shooting it all and everything. He zipped it up. They followed him out. He got in the elevator. They were in there with the elevator, went down to the lobby, comes out. He goes up to the front desk and they're still filming him and everything. Nobody knows what's going on because he'd never done this before. And he checks out of the hotel. He goes outside. He gets in a cab, and the cameras are still filming him. And he drove off to the airport. <laughs> he left, and he never came back. <laughs> that is a perfect story. <laughs> oh my god! I never got to meet Burt Reynolds and like commiserate with him, but um, but you know, oh. you know that somehow you're kindred spirits. So yes, yeah. Oh, that's a great story. So, oh my so God. that was wonderful. I'm so that's glad. time code. Yeah, that's time. That's time code. Um, so then you do Jurassic Park three, which I mean, I would have to wonder. Other than Face Off, at the time, was probably the like the biggest, most high profile thing you'd probably been a part of, right? Or yeah, right? I mean, no question. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it was just like a a huge juggernaut thing, um, and. Uh, yeah, I can't. I'm, I'm trying to remember the chronology of that, but I, but um, yeah, that was definitely no. I mean, everything else had been kind of Miramax type movies. Sure, you know? sure. Right, right. We were debating bringing up, <laughs> by the way, your voice being, you, you must know this, the now famous memeable moment of the raptor in the plane saying, Alan. <laughs> Is that your that's your voice? Because you're the you say Alan. So I mean, uh, 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 and now just to be clear, Jurassic Park three is my favorite Jurassic Park sequel, and I will I will go to the grave. I it's a fun movie. It's a quick movie. It's like a creature feature. But um, me and Connor were like, should we bring it up? I, you know. <laughs> Um, look, that that movie was one of the most boring movies uh, to shoot in, in, <laughs> in my career. Um, I, I would spend like on average like 12 hours in my trailer. I'd be then called out. This was on the Universal lot. I mean, some of it we were in, we were in Hawaii for like three weeks or something. But then then uh, we were in, on the Universal lot. I'd come out. I'd like run. Uh, from one end of the sound stage to the other, I then exit out the other side to the music of the Jurassic Park ride. Oh my god! <laughs> and emptied out right next to the sound stage where we were filming, so it was like there was no escape from the. Like, <laughs> That's so funny. And back to my trailer uh, to sit and wait again. Um, you know those movies are really fun to watch and really like yeah. tedious to film. Um, great people involved. I, I loved all of them. And, and Sam Neill became a really close friend and he's just a, a, an incredibly wonderful guy. He's so dry and funny and, and cool and generous and talented. Uh, 
Joe Johnston, I, I really loved, but um, <clears throat> it was, um, you know, just like, uh, you know, not really an acting job. It was <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. Not disobedience, not disobedience. Yeah, and then you follow that up, uh, at least chronologically speaking, uh, release-wise, you follow that up with Laurel Canyon, which we talked about on our Cape Beckinsale mm -hmm. episode where you play Ian McKnight. You get to show off some singing chops there as well. Um, and then you, um, you, know, you kind of go through, we're going to jump ahead a little bit because uh, we're going to pop up to Ginger and Rosa, but you pop up in a bunch of different stuff, some of which Dan has mentioned uh, yeah so so a couple of just so like the clearing right which i i remember seeing uh it was robert redford it was the first movie redford was in that was in competition at sundance i always remember that that movie the clearing and it's like william defoe takes some hostage you're you're redford's son i think in that right yeah exactly yeah and then and then um june bug which is a great movie which if you know our i feel like our listeners would have seen but if you haven't seen it uh great movie and i was watching uh some of that earlier today and that just you had been with m beth who you're with in the movie you're her brother in mansfield right which is funny and um that's just such a great movie. Like that's Amy Adams is coming out party, but also like everybody's so great in it. Um, so definitely check that one out. Um, and then, yeah, like Connor said, grace is gone. Underrated movie. John Cusack's in that you're in the goal movies, which is like a whole thing, which is like, I love that. There's like a whole, like Wami Kola and like, uh, Danny Cannon directed the first one. You play a soccer star, which is crazy. Um, and then like, and then, yeah, before Ginger Rosa, like the eye, which Wait, is the goal movies are the movie I get recognized for. More I was gonna is that I career. I really would, that does not surprise me. Is at that all. I mean yeah. is that just because of sort of like you said, splitting your life between here and, and England? Is well, it, is big, it more so big, over there? I remember seeing them on cable for sure. It was yeah, it, yeah. No, I, I'm sorry, I should qualify it. Everywhere outside of the U.S. Is <laughs> sure, where I, that's the movie I get recognized for most. Like, if I go to Mexico, I'll be in like a supermarket, and people will come up to me. If I'm in Italy, if I'm like anywhere in Europe or England or whatever, like everybody <laughs> has seen this. Like weird, these weird, and they were so kind of like off the Hollywood radar. And I only did them just because I was a big soccer fan. They told me that I was going to get to play with all these famous players, which I did. And then some, but, um, but yeah, um, it's just funny. Like it's sort of like this weird little like side chapter to my career that I didn't really <laughs> take that seriously, but I really enjoyed. And then like, it just so many people around the world, yeah. uh, came to sort of, love those movies <laughs> yeah i mean there there were big movies i mean i remember you know you, you were right they're i guess less big here but obviously as football is continues to be bigger here i feel like those movies grow which is an interesting thing um at least stateside and then like so i watch you know you're you're the second lead in the eye jessica alba movie from 08 which is a remake one of the kind of american remakes of japanese horror movies that was a big thing back in the day um for for all you five dollars a day five dollars a day i remember liking a lot i saw that a long time ago uh that's like an underrated indie you and you and christopher walken in that one um and then um coco before chanel i was at that can film festival as an intern and i remember the ads everywhere for that movie 
Um, and I know that was one when we were talking before recording that you you kind of had a lot of love for, Alessandro, you were saying. So that's like a, an important moment there. And then, yeah, Ginger and Roses is, is, you know, I, I think it's 2012 in terms of release, but probably came out anywhere, depending on where you are, 2012, 2013. And that's Sally Potter directing that which you know the great sally potter who did orlando and a bunch of uh kind of great work um and so that movie i had not seen i don't think either me and connor had seen a fascinating movie right it's basically set primarily in the early 60s in britain and it's these two young uh you know really young women teenagers uh elle fanning and alice englert uh, or ginger and rosa and they are like dealing with the impending nuclear, you know, scare of, of that time in their own ways whilst growing up. And you play um, Ginger's father and you are with Christina Hendricks in the film and you're kind of like a bohemian guy, very much kind of an activist, you know, very, very yeah. activist, very progressive, went to went to. It's revealed in the film went to jail for. Um, yeah, I I I was a pacifist. Right, I, right. I refused right. to fight, and maybe That's I went it, yeah. to prison for that. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah, and so that I mean, so this is one of these movies, and like like we like we were saying before recording, like you have a lot of these, which I think, but isn't is it is great. Like, it's 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 really a lovely movie. Um, so how does how do you come to Ginger and Rose? I guess is the question, and like. Once again, this is a character I don't know that you had played before and things get, you know, it's a sticky movie. Things get weird. Things get conflicted in terms of, you know, we I, we won't spoil it, I suppose. But you do a great job of threading the needle with this character who is not inherently a good person. But it really is almost the he almost exemplifies the premise of that movie, which is like the complicated politics within progressive thinking right which which i think is a fascinating thing yeah no uh, that's absolutely right i mean look I, I if i had to speak in general terms i would say that i i find that you know moral ambiguity in characters to be um a fascinating and wonderful thing and i i, I i've been very successful at playing those kinds of characters i mean you know, what I'm hoping is going to be like, you know, one of the performances that people rem will remember me for most is the, you know, the, I've got the sort of my role of a lifetime is, is this thing I just finished, uh, which is the prequel to the Sopranos series that um, Warner Brothers has made that David Chase um, wrote and produced uh, and nowhere is there a character that embodies that more than than this one um it's uh something that like i you know i i, I never judge the characters that i play i always um you know think about them in terms of like you know what are the positive things that are driving them and um uh i i don't ever kind of step outside of them to um, think, uh, you know, I never think of it as I'm playing a good person or a bad person or, you know, what I'm doing in this scene is 
good or bad. It's just like, you know, what are my longings? What are my desires? What are the things that I care about? What are the things that I'm, you know, that I need? What are the things that I've, that I'm dreaming of? And sometimes those are, you know, compulsions or, you know, those are things that are defined by, you know, a history of family violence or, you know, cycles of, of family violence in the case of the role that I play in the, in the Many Saints of Newark. Um, and in the case of Ginger and Rosa, um, he has a, uh, this character had a worldview that was very um, extreme, uh, you know, radic a radical worldview um, that is born out of the, uh, you know, out of some really sort of powerful and um, legitimate social and political theories of, of um, you know, communal living, um, pacifism, um, uh, you know, uh, egalitarianism, and he's so committed to it that what comes along with it is a kind of lifestyle that ends up being really confusing and hurtful to the people that he really loves the most. And, um, you know, it's, it's really, a, this, this was an autobiographical story about um, Sally's relationship with her father, who had an affair with uh, her best friend when she was 16. And, um, you know, it wasn't illegal. It wasn't, uh, you know, um, it wasn't a technically pedophilia. Um, she wasn't 12, you know, she was just at the age where it was technically legitimate, but it was like a total, um, you know, emotional, um, train wreck for for her and and for his her relationship with him um but i don't think that she thinks of her father as a terrible person right i think she she's very morally conflicted about it and she really admires him in a lot of ways and is also really resentful of him so uh the trick was to kind of uh, allow both of those uh, you know, allow the, allow for the audience to feel both those things about that character. Yeah, no. And as Dan said, you, you, you thread a really nice needle cause they're, it's the kind of movie and the kind of performance where, you know, there'll be one scene, there's like the scene for instance, where you're having the conversation with, uh, with ginger about God. Right. And, and, and you make certain points there that are totally valid points and totally acceptable. And you, you, rather than even having like a father daughter conversation seem to have a conversation as equals from a philosophical standpoint, which is really interesting. And then that's sort of, uh, juxtaposed with certain scenes later in the movie where you're sort of explaining these philosophies, but in the context of the events that transpired, they feel way more vicious and, and destructive, uh, which I think is a really, I feel like it's a, that's like a tough balance to strike. Um, but, but it, it is what makes the movie kind of this interesting, murky uh fascinating character piece and i do want to kind of dovetail that into what you know the way you talked about those kinds of roles i do want to dovetail that into our next b-side that we're going to talk about we'll jump ahead a little bit a little bit further um to disobedience um so in the interim you know you've done things people have 
definitely seen all really great movies that I would recommend checking out. Obviously, you pop up in American Hustle, uh, A Most Violent Year, which is a movie that I actually have a lot of love for, um, Selma, um, Neon Demon, and uh, and then, of course, obviously, Wizard of Lies, where you get to work with Robert De Niro, which is uh, a great movie. You give a really, really great performance uh, as Mark Madoff. Um, and then... Uh, you were never really here. The Lynn Ramsey movie. Um, Ooh, yeah, that's yeah. A, which is that is a which is performance. The, yes, which is a that is a almost yeah. the, the, the the I would say maybe the extreme to the darker sides of uh, of what happens in Ginger and Rosa for sure. But uh, a wonderful performance. Um, and then Art of Self Defense, uh, which was last year. Right, 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 right. Or uh, was that? No, yeah, sorry, yeah. I'm, I'm skipping. Tw- I'm skipping disobedience. Yeah, that sorry. was that was yeah. last year. Yeah. But uh, but before that, you did uh, you did disobedience, um, which is such a tremendous performance. And it's I watched it last night with my wife, and I was I had said to her uh, I had never seen the movie, and I had said to her that narratives like that, which uh, you know you you've actually done kind of quite a few of them, Laurel Canyon being one of them, um, but narratives that are sort of a a unit, a seemingly solid unit that gets shaken up, right, by this kind of outside force. Um, I kind of, those types of movies can go one way or another for me in terms of sometimes it just turns into a movie about like terrible people doing terrible things, which can get tough to watch. What I, what I love about Disobedience is that it's just three humans trying to like deal with a situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, the David character is particularly fascinating in terms of that maybe moral ambiguity isn't quite the word, but um, definitely sort of an ambiguous antagonistic quality, right? Which the the fascinating thing about the movie, and Dan and I were talking about this uh, last night after I finished watching it, is that you, so you play, you know, you play David Cooperman, who's a, uh, a a rabbi uh, in London and Rachel Weisz's character essentially, who has left this Orthodox community many years ago, kind of comes back into the fold and um, and essentially reinvigorates old feelings for your wife, who's played by Rachel McAdams. And obviously, things kind of get shaken up from there. But your character, the minute you're introduced in the minute that kind of the uh, the romantic underpinnings of the movie start to to unfold, as a viewer, you sort of look at that and you're like, oh, yep, he's okay. This is this is the stick in the mud. This is the antagonist. This is that yeah, thing. Yeah. And it's it's a really wonderfully complicated performance because it unfolds in a fashion that could so easily be portrayed as antagonistic. And instead, it's it's treated with a really uh, a really significant amount of tenderness and sympathy and, and empathy. Right. I should say Um as as you sort of watch David try and sort of uh, deal with his his life unraveling, as it were, and it culminates uh, in a really really wonderful scene near the end of the film that I won't uh, I won't spoil. But is that would you consider that role kind of part of what you're talking about? I mean, again, it doesn't seem like this is a role you would come at from an angle of you know obviously this is an antagonist and that that comes through in your performance. And you you actually gave a great interview uh, a couple of years back to Awards Daily, where you sort of talked about your process, uh, hanging out in uh, you know uh, hat shops in Brooklyn and that kind of thing um, as you were preparing for it. 
is there any kind of like thing you do to sort of really tackle that that empathetic side of diving into a performance like this? Um, well, I, I mean, all I'll say is that the more time that you have to prepare, the better. And um, the more time you have, the more specific you can be um, uh, about character and about, you know, behavior and psychology. And the more specific you are, uh, the less likely you are to fall into some kind of cliche or um, paradigm of, of uh, a certain type of, of character that um, could easily be dismissed as, uh, you know, a bad guy type or, uh, or, you know, a heroic type. Um, and the more you, you know, the kind of um, paradoxes of, of human beings are able to come through. And this role, uh, I had the luxury of a really long period of preparation for part of that was just by necessity because i had to grow like <laughs> it is a, it's an impressive beard it's a very yeah it's i was sort of envious i was like that's a very that's a very healthy beard great beard yeah <laughs> um but uh also there were so many details in terms of the behavioral details that are just things that you have to learn you know if they, if you're uh, uh growing up in uh, orthodox judaism there are just things that you do in different situations that are just second nature to you um there are certain rituals certain prayers that you say certain physical behavioral things that you just you just do having grown up in that environment that can't seem like uh, you know, that have to seem like second nature. And so um, <clears throat> I really needed to spend a lot of time to kind of make those things become habitual and feel habitual to me in order to, you know, for me to believe myself and and also for it to to seem believable to an audience. And, um, and so, yeah, I think it, it really is all about specificity. The more detail you start to, um, uncover and discover as you're, you know, about a character as you're working on it and researching it and letting your imagination grapple with it, um, the less, uh, the less likely you are to end up kind of falling into something that, uh, you've seen before or that, uh, is too, easily definable as one thing or another. Obviously, it depends on the script as well. And that script really afforded the character the opportunity to, um, you know, be somebody who uh, had chosen a life that really was, was fairly rigid in terms of uh, adherence to religious law. But on the other hand, who was also uh, really a, a, in his nature, an open-minded person and somebody who is full of love and how those two things are able to coexist in one person, you know, is something that the script and that Sebastian Lelio, the director, was interested in exploring. So that uh, helped as well. Yeah, I mean, like every, you know, every character like that could can, can be Kurt Woodsmith from Dead Poets Society, right? I think like, 
there's that you know not that's a great performance but the the like oh this guy and his faith is gonna warp everything but what's great about disobedience is there's no it's it's not a down the line you know you know ripping apart of orthodox judaism right it's it's a movie about how faith is complicated and about you know the the pros and the cons and 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 amongst obviously many other things but um yeah it's personified really well yeah no i mean that was really important to me and i I felt like I had a responsibility to sure, people yeah. who were, uh, you know, who who are, uh, you know, living an orthodox life to have this person be somebody who, um, given these particular circumstances, was trying to find the best way, you know, the happiest ending. And um, I know that, like, the the orthodox people that who i got to know when i was when i was working on the the role who saw the movie didn't feel like the movie was an indictment of orthodox judaism and that was a that felt like an achievement for me personally yeah no i mean it it is certainly an achievement and i i I want to use this opportunity to mention so Around this time, I think a little after Disobedience, around the same time, you produce a, a movie called To Dust, which is a is a lovely dramedy, right? It's it's a it's it's Giza Rorig from Son of Saul in the lead role with Matthew Broderick as well, and is basically uh, an Orthodox Jewish man who kind of can't get over the death of his wife, so he becomes kind of obsessed with how she's decomposing essentially and in that process of trying to understand it as a form of coping befriends this um this biology teacher who's played by matthew broderick and there's some great uh great scenes in that movie and so i just it's not that's on amazon prime right now well, so that was just a, say, you know it was a total coincidence uh um, oh, funny okay i i had i had been working on putting that movie together as a producer and financing you know raising money for it and and um, casting it and all that kind of thing before I was cast in Disobedience. And then just like out of the blue, Disobedience came along and I was like launched into this whole, uh, you know, world, deep, yeah. uh, deep dive into the Orthodox world as an actor. <laughs> right. And then, uh, you know, when I finished that, we produced, uh, we actually shot to dust only a few months later. And so a lot of the guys who I'd been working with in Crown Heights here in Brooklyn um, uh, with all of my Hebrew and, uh, you know, who I'd become really close friends with and they'd started inviting me over for their Shabbos dinners and stuff. And I ended up like having them come and advise on, hmm. on the dust and um, work with Geza and, and uh, you know, all of the different actors who were playing people from that world. Uh, on that film and so they that's funny like a a direct crossover from it but it was totally just by chance those are those those are two great ones to seek out and then you know usually as we're wrapping up the episode what we'll do is we'll say what we'd like to see this actor next you know what have you so we have you here you're like you said you're making or have just finished making the many the many sense of newark which is the prequel to the sopranos directed by alan taylor but obviously david chase the man, the myth is, is of course, you know, uh, the creator of that. So how has that been? What has that process been like? I know you're excited about, it. I know it's certainly going to be on the film stages 
you know, top 10 most anticipated movies next year. So how's that process been? Well, it's been, you know, both the most incredible acting experience of my life and one of the most frustrating because, uh, you know, so, you know, getting the role was um, just a huge deal. It was the lead role in a movie that was going to be really anticipated at, you know, the biggest studio in Hollywood. And uh, it was a brilliantly written role. He's, you know, the movie is a, a kind of origin story about Tony Soprano told through uh, uh, Christopher Moltisanti's dad, who was dead before the, the series began. Dickie Moltisanti is his name. And he was Tony's mentor as a as a young man. And, um, you know, Tony features in it as a, a kid at like 10 years old in 1967 when the movie begins. And then and then uh, later at like 15 uh, when um, it jumps five years and he um, for, you know, as the older version is played by Gandolfini's son, Michael, who's wonderful. Um, but, uh, it's a, you know, really kind of, in my mind, kind of ingenious thing that David did to choose to tell the story through this character who was only a kind of, um, you know, there was mythology around him in the series, but, um, he never really featured in the show itself. And so David was allowed to, to invent a, a new kind of anti-hero um, completely from scratch uh, and not have to rely on the central character being somebody that was being kind of recreated as a younger version right. or impersonation of one of the beloved characters in the, in the show. Um, and I had, um, yeah, again, like I, I, I took six months off before we started filming and just, um, start, you know, started preparing for it for, for that whole period. And the whole lead up to that was, in, was incredible. And the, the shoot was, um, you know, one of the most fulfilling experiences I've had as an actor, uh, until, March 13th, when we were two weeks for, away from finishing the movie and uh, COVID shut us down. <clears throat> and after all of this kind of build up to the whole thing and all the preparation I'd done and all, going through the whole shoot, suddenly like the, the plug was pulled and uh, I then had to go through the next six months just um, not really being able to let the the character go. I, I, I couldn't cut my hair. I, I I was just like in this state of limbo, um, just just shy of the finish line. And it was one of the most like painful and bizarre uh, experiences um, to have to kind of wait. And I had no idea when we were going to be able to finish it. And I was just sort of day by day waiting for the phone to ring to tell me like that I had to get back to New York and, and uh, you know, put my costume back on. And um, finally uh, in September um, the, the call came and we, we went back and, and uh, had to just kind of like 
pick up exactly where we'd left off and right. finish up these last two weeks. And, and we did, and now they're, um, you know, they're editing a movie now and, and, uh, it'll be out next year. I mean, I think that they had initially pushed it to the spring. Uh, I have a feeling that they're going to, um, you know, look more at the fall just because sure. of the virus and the way things are going. And it's a movie that really they're determined to have, in the cinemas, like it, it, it really is a cinematic film and it's designed sure. in that way. And I think David feels very strongly that, uh, that it's a movie and not a television show. And so, uh, I guess, uh, we'll see how, how it plays out, but, um, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that they're gonna, that they're gonna look at, at next fall when people can really like pile into movie theaters again. Yeah. Well, let's, Let's hope for that. And then speaking of TV, we should just mention as we're recording, currently on FX is Black Narcissus, which you're you're Mr. Dean and the the TV, which is crazy to watch. I was watching last night, like you're you're the David Farrar character. I was like, wow. And it's just it's 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 quite different from the Pal Pressburger uh movie, but the main but, difference is that I, I a, I'm not wearing shorts. <laughs> yeah. I'm not riding a three foot tall pony. <laughs> well, and 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 Gene Simmons isn't playing, you know, oh, that isn't character. Black. Yeah, that's a yeah. huge difference. But um, but I, it's a compelling show. Uh, um, and I'm gonna I, I'm gonna I'll finish it up. Um, I watched the first couple episodes last night, so I'm gonna finish it up. So that's a recommend man for sure. Uh, currently on FX. Um, thank you uh, for taking the time, man. Honestly, it's so great to have you here. And um, hey, it's my pleasure. It's great to meet both of you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you again so much, as Dan said. Well, we should, uh, we'll do it again uh, next year when um, when Many Saints comes out. Absolutely. Oh, my God. Ab- yeah. Absolutely. We'd love we'd love to have you back. Thank you again so much for being so generous uh, with your time. And uh, as uh, as Alessandro mentioned, uh, you can check him out currently on FX uh, in Black Narcissus, Many Saints in Newark, hopefully coming out uh, later next year. We, we hope. Yeah. Fingers crossed. And, uh, yeah, Alessandro, thank you so, so much. We really appreciate it. If we don't hear from you, have a, have a wonderful holiday and and a happy new year. You too, guys. Take care. Really good to talk to you and, and, uh, talk to you again soon. Well, there you have it, folks. That was certainly, um, one of the more exciting hour and 15 minutes I've had talking with someone who I really respect. One thing it's funny, um, as we wrap up this episode, I just want to shout out amazingly, um, a performance I did, I neglected to mention in the episode, in the interview is the Red Sea Diving Resort, which though I didn't, I don't love the movie, um, Alessandro Nivola is very good in it. Um, he, he, he co-stars alongside Chris Evans, among others, and kind of to the point of, you know, kind of the way we were talking about his career and also just if you know his career, indicative of who he is, he's like the third lead and you come away from that movie being like, man, Navola's good. You know, like... No, like- right. No, 100, 100%. One thing that I, you know, I mentioned in our conversation uh, and obviously gloss over it because it's not one of our B-sides, but I do think is sort of B-side-y and maybe could come up on a future episode is uh, A Most Violent Year, which is a movie he kind of pops in and out of and then becomes a very specifically important part of uh, at one point. 
Um, and yeah, I, and then also to that point, right? We talk about this a little bit. Selma and the Neon Demon are two also like that. And no, yeah, you were never really here. They're all yeah. within a few years, and it's like two scenes, whatever. And you're like, damn. <laughs> no, that, but they are very much. I mean, in my estimation, you know, and maybe not the same style of performance, but it's kind of. I, I think all of those movies, to me, ha- as, as it pertains to him, have that vibe of something like, say, a history of violence. Uh, you know, with uh, with William Hurt, where like he shows up for not that much of the movie. And then suddenly that's like all you can think of about the movie when you think about it kind of thing. And I I think he, he is an actor who's prone to giving those kinds of performances and it's to his credit. Um, But um, Dan, as far as the three movies that we talked about, how would you, how would you kind of rank them and and which ones would you most encourage people to see? Yeah, sure. I, so I like, all three of these movies actually almost, I mean, weirdly almost equally, if I'm being honest, they're all very different, which we talk about as you heard. Um, but you gun to my head. Um, yeah, it's hard gun to my head. I guess I go three, two, one. I go ginger and Rosa disobedience and one is love's labor's oh, lost wow that is not how i thought that was gonna go but i i don't I know honestly tell you, i don't know why i was surprised because listen i gotta tell you love's labor's lost i mean you heard it on yeah. the show it's really one that like i mean it's as i was watching it it's i was like it was made specifically I, for you it was i I, was like, I wanted to bring it up in our conversation with him but i wasn't gonna go down the road of like explaining what mecca yeah where novola is like first of all what's your last name mecca mecca core who are you yeah no i wasn't i wasn't gonna do that but um yeah but yeah no love's labor is lost i think is specifically right up your, your alley and to the point where and obviously you and i are very good friends to the point where when i watched it not only did i get it but i did feel so, like where it is just a very nice movie i think oh uh, yeah and if you're yeah 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 like i kind of said in our conversation if you are it has its problems and there is a, a strange inconsistency to it that alessandra kind of points out very openly which i appreciate it i'll say very, oh yeah very candid guy um but uh, but I think if you're willing to just kind of let the movie wash over you and charm you, it it does kind of have that effect. Um, I would I mean, I I basically agree. I think these are I think all three are good movies. I would recommend all of them uh, in any capacity to, to anybody who wanted to watch. Um, I would fl- flip the last two. I would say Ginger and Rosa at three and then Love's Labor's Lost, and then Disobedience, because I do think Disobedience is just, like, truly just such a great movie. Like, whereas Love's Labor's Lost is, like, I got to kind of put an asterisk on that one, I feel like, if I'm recommending it to a certain person. Sure, um, sure. I mean, and yeah, like you're saying, Disobedience could be one, right? I sure, mean, sure. For me, I mean, uh, and it's, I, it's, it's close. It's, um, yeah, I think that is the one I would most wholeheartedly recommend. I think it is, without a doubt, one of his best performances sure um so but i do think the i think the reason i like that that you know we kind of highlighted these three movies specifically is because i do think it does kind of illustrate this interesting range of his as an actor um but also sort of that you know if, if love love's labor's loss is the earliest one and you're kind of going to ginger and rosa and then disobedience it does, uh, you know, it starts to hone in on what he described as the kinds of roles he loves to play that sort of moral ambiguity kind of you don't know which way this person's going to fall kind of thing. Um, and I think 
I'm glad we chose those latter two films in particular because I just think it really keyed into what he seems to really like about being an actor. So, um, so yeah, that that's that. That's Alessandro Nivola. Um, anything else we should uh, we should chime in on here, Dan? Before no, we I don't wrap think so. Um, you know, watch watch his movies. Seek out the ones we talk about. There's plenty to to chew on. Um, we're always excited to get these types of people to come on because, like Connor mentioned, I think his work is emblematic of the stuff that we respond to as fans of films and specifically when you talk about the b-side so this really was a high point of of the year for the podcast along with brian koppelman and obviously we've had amazing guests but like in terms of just you know where art meets you know criticism it's nice to be able to like actually talk with people about the stuff they've done and you know their contemporaries so that was super exciting and uh yeah we would just appreciate you listening and kind of being on the journey with us. Yeah. And please uh, do, you know, uh, you know, whether you're listening to this right upon its release or you're listening to it a year from now, who knows uh, if you're listening to it in fall of 2021, maybe um, go see many saints of Newark in a theater. If it is safe to do so. <laughs> right, right. 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 Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's something that, that uh, like Dan said uh, when we started is something, obviously we, you know, would, would encourage. Um, and, uh, and I really do hope, I really do hope it does the things for him that he, that he seems to want it to. Um, that said that that's been our episode. Uh, Dan, where can people find you? You can always find me at, uh, DJ Mecca on Twitter, of course. Um, and on the film stage, I've reviewed stuff like half brothers recently. Um, I did an interview with Sienna Miller that you can read for an upcoming movie of hers. It's probably out. If you're listening, it's probably out. Wander Darkly is the name of that picture. I had a nice conversation with Sienna Miller. You can check that out on the film stage. Um, Yeah, man, that's where I am. Come find me. All right. And you can find this podcast on Twitter and Facebook at TFSB side. Uh, Yeah. And we should also say um, we are, if you're listening to this on the day of its release, uh, we will be featured on the first episode of season three of Sundays with Kate, which is hosted. It's a Kate Blanchett podcast hosted by past and future guest Murtad Elvato, who runs a really great show there. And uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, this upcoming episode, we talk about the Richard Linklater film, Where'd You Go Bernadette? So that was a lot of fun. You can give Sundays with Kate a follow on Twitter at Sundays with Kate, C-A-T-E. And uh, you can give Murtada a follow on Twitter at M-E underscore says. Uh, if you like what you've heard, um, like Dan said, this will probably also drop on the main film stage show feed. But uh, please pop on over to uh, the B-side feed as well. If you're not already listening there, give us a follow. Give us a rate, review, subscribe. We greatly appreciate it. You can find more episodes like this. We've done a bunch. Um, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at Scruffy Looking. Um, and... Yeah, it's been a, a, a great pleasure, and I all I will say, I'll leave you with this simple, simple phrase from the man himself, Alessandro Nivola. Alan! Leave it behind and give your mind to something new. I'd rather Charleston, 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 Charleston with you. 